Hi listeners, it's Gally here, just letting you know that Matt's audio file got corrupted. So unfortunately, his audio quality about 10 minutes into this episode will not be as good as you would usually expect. I hope it doesn't distract you from enjoying our discussion on The Bodyguard. Thank you for your understanding, listeners. We appreciate it. So you're saying you won't protect Rachel Marin just because she's in show business? I don't do celebrities. 2500 Look, there's several good men available for that kind of money. Bummer, we're talking about a very frightened little lady with an eight-year-old son. Believe me, I wouldn't be here if I didn't think this was for real. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Bill said he used to be with a secret service. That's right. You ever guard the main man? I was two years with Carter, four with Reagan. Reagan got shot. Not on my ship. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing The Bodyguard, starring Kevin Costner. Hello. Hi. Wait a minute. Well, you don't look like a bodyguard. What'd you expect? Well, I don't know. Maybe a tough guy? This is my disguise. Whitney Houston. Someone's willing to swap his life for a kill and nothing can stop him, Rachel. Great. What do I need you for? You might get me instead. And you're ready to die for me? It's the job. Michelle Lamar Richards. When I was a kid, I put together this little band and used to play high school dance. Stuff like that. Then Rachel joined the act, and as you can imagine, she was quite a little intense. Gary Kemp. I didn't tell you. Didn't tell me what? There were some letters before, Rachel, same kind of thing, threats, oddball stuff. What were we doing worry, sweetheart? And somebody got into the house. Someone was in my house? Okay, let's not get hysterical, Bill. Wait a minute, wait a minute, someone was in my house? And Tomas Arana. So who are you? Greg Portman. I take it you met my bodyguard. We used to work together. Directed by Mick Jackson. I mean, I didn't get to this place in my life by doing the smart thing every time. Haven't you done something in your life that just didn't make much sense? I know you have. Because nobody gets good without it. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. <laughs> it's Gally in Glasgow. Somebody broke in and masturbated on the bed. It's Patrick in Rome. Come on, Rachel. Let us brighten this firmament. It's Matt in South Korea. That's what the vocal warm-up was for. Wow. It was, yeah. Sorry about that, team. Um, yeah, uh, Whitney Houston's estate will get 10 quid there. So yeah. <laughs> oh, You didn't want to go for the old country and western style singing? I, I haven't got that octave. Dolly, no. No, I haven't got it. Um, and people just say she's a big pair of tits. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... <laughs> welcome back gang and welcome back listeners and patrick welcome back from 
Rome. Have you had a chicken cacciatore since you've arrived in Rome? <laughs> no, no <laughs> kitch, uh, kitchen chicken cacciatore yet, but um, I did see the hunter's moon, ah. <laughs> um, which, ah, which is glorious. Moon. And yes, I'm, I'm over for an audience with the Pope. Um, yeah, I'm in Rome for the next couple of months on a film. Can't tell you what it is, sadly, but um, it's different out here than what I'm used to, <laughs> and it's taking a bit of getting used to. Yeah. Is the crew uh, largely Italian? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's US crew, there's some British crew, and we've got an Australian, uh, uh, no, excuse me, New Zealand DAP from the new Lord of the Rings series. Um, oh, nice. He's really cool. Um, yeah, but mainly Italian. Okay. How many times have you said since you've arrived, when in Rome? Or have you not said it yet? <laughs> of course I have. Um, I don't know how many. Uh, maybe you can count it on one hand because I don't want to say it too much. But the hand gestures are starting to pick up. Okay, cool. Because I still don't understand. Uh, I, I don't understand the, the saying. <laughs> but there we go. Um, we're back. Uh, a throwback, I would say, because Matt, you've wanted to do the bodyguard for some time, and I would say we're rounding off the Kevin Costner. Is it? The, is it quadrilogy now? Three we're now four. into four. Waterworld, Robin Hood, and this is that the trilogy? Did we do Dancing with the Wolves? Yes. We did Dancing with the so Wolves. Yes. Yeah, so this is number four. Hmm. Quattro. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, um, I didn't know if so, this should be under bargain bin or throwback. It could go into either category, but for me, it's more of a throwback because I have a bit more of a defensive position on it than, than most, I'd say. Set the, st- set the stalls out already. Yeah. Love it. Um, okay. Well, if I see you with an oversized camera, uh, <laughs> when I'm talking uh, badly about the movie, I know that you're taking a shot. Yeah. So do you not think he, he had that red laser sight on a bit prematurely as she's actually walking up to the stage? Just, just, a, just a little bit. I mean, he was, he was almost in Sarah Connor territory. Well, like, do you want to give Miles Bennett Dyson an mm. opportunity to duck? I it's mean, like Leon says <laughs> you, you don't even take the, uh, the thing off the eye piece until the last possible That's moment. right. You don't give you, don't give yourself away. Mm. No, no. Should have been trained by uh, Jean Renault. Mm. But anyway, uh, maybe you would have been more successful. But we can get into that. So listeners, we're doing The Bodyguard, not the TV show. So once again, anyone who's here to talk about the TV show, um, as Matt would say, get lost. And then Patrick, you're supposed to chime in and say, no, 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 stay and, uh, and learn more about the, I think that's what you said last time. <laughs> Please say this is the film, the 1992 film, The Bodyguard. All bodyguards welcome. Indeed, indeed. So we'll start with the uh, first, first experiences in history with The Bodyguard. Matt, I'll start with you because you're, you're the one that's already set your stall out. The Bodyguard. Discuss. I've seen this one perhaps as many times as Frank Farmer's seen Yojimbo. Um, but uh, I'd had it on VHS back in the day. Um, first time I saw it was 93 in Hong Kong. We had holidays in, in Hong Kong when I was a kid because my mum's brother was a Hong Kong police officer uh, around that time. Um, and he, the first time we went, I think it was 87, and he had the self-titled whitney cd in his car the whole time so that was even a precursor to seeing the bodyguard that was the one with i want to dance with somebody on it and uh that would just loop all the time so i know that whole album off by heart uh but in 93 uh around that time i was allowed to go to the video shop with my uncle and pick out 
films for the family to watch. And I made a letterbox list of all the films that we watched. If anyone's interested, it'll be on, on the blog. It's like Under Siege and Clear and Present Danger and In the Line of Fire and stuff like that. I was There's a theme here, out. Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a theme, um, yeah. That's what I was into at the time. And uh, so, yeah, we watched we watched it. Uh, some of the more, the, the cruder lines, like um, Patrick's intro, someone broke in and masturbated on the bed, and um, <laughs> Whitney saying, um, uh, but I can't fuck you, and all that stuff. I, I'm sure that went way over my head. But um, the, the story and uh, the film itself uh, remains quite a... Um, a special one to me. I've, I've watched it a lot on VHS over the years. I mimicked Kevin Costner to no end. I think I told you on one of the other podcasts, I had a perfect world poster on my wall and I hadn't even seen the film. It was just Kevin Costner with a kid uh, and, and Clint Eastwood directed it, I think. And uh, I hadn't even you seen You wish you were that kid. Time. Well, kind of, kind of. <laughs> I mean, my dad's fantastic, but um, Kev- Kevin Costner is kind of a, a, a massive, you know, a masculine hero. He was my favorite movie star at the time. You know, there's Roger Moore maybe a bit earlier. And then I think Harrison Ford was up there. But around this time with Robin Hood and stuff like that, Costner was the man. Um, so yeah, I, I found myself mimicking all the stuff he was doing. I had a water pistol at the time with like a detachable clip and I was going around the house pretending to be Frank Farmer. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's quite an important one for me. Um, and also one of my early girlfriends, like when I was 11, not a real girlfriend, but, um, I remember ripping off the line, I'd keep, keep doing something. Uh, if, if I was afraid of something, I'd keep doing it until the fear went away. I remember saying that about myself to try and impress her. And, um, wow. I, I and don't she's think still not with you? How is that possible? How is that possible? But, <laughs> if yeah, she's listening, but, please write in. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I'll pass over. Uh, how about Patrick? I'm intrigued to hear your history with the bodyguard. I, I, it's not as um, deep-seated as yours, but actually your, yours sounds like mine with Kevin Costner for uh, Prince of Thieves. And I think I said on the episode that I was, Kevin Costner was just, like you, he was my idol but, and probably my first favourite um, movie star as well. And you know, I recognize his face. And if there was a film with Costner, I'm like, yeah, I've got to watch that. And I, I do, I think I've only ever watched this film once before this week, ready for the podcast. And it was all those years ago that were when I, it's one of those like handyman that I remember at primary school and it being, you know, it got onto TV, whether it was BBC or ITV, um, I was like, oh my God, you've got to watch The Bodyguard. You know, everyone knew the song. The song was huge. It's like, you've got to watch it tonight. You don't fucking come to school unless you've watched it because you'll get kicked out. Uh, that kind of deal. And I, I'm pretty sure that's how I watched it. And with, with my parents, maybe my uncle as well, but I, I have very kind of vivid, but few memories of it. Like the, um, the samurai sword scene with the, the scarf that cut the over silk it. scarf. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember that as an image and that I think, um, cause I thought it was so cool, the samurai sword. And I think it was my first kind of impression of a samurai sword, um, fit for me, um, when I was what, eight or nine or something. And, um, the chess with his dad. So I, I thought that was quite a cool concept as well. And I thought, the two-year oh, chess that, game. 
and it, I, I actually remember it being like, because I was playing chess at the time, my granddad and, and my dad, and thinking, oh, it'd be cool if we had a game like that, and it'd be so good. But I, you know, the games would only last about an hour, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like not not three years. Um, and cost, I, I actually um have a memory as well. It's going to sound really stupid, but of not liking Costner's hair and saying to like my mum and dad, like, oh, like his hair's not like Robin Hood, and I remember feeling like I wish his hair was the Robin Hood hair. Missed the mullet. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's kind of my memory with it. I was, yeah, just that big film you had to watch at the time. But I, um, funny, we, we were going to watch this, we were going to do this quite a few months ago, I think. And it was on at the cinema, uh, as a 30 year anniversary thing. And I, I was going to book to go, but then we cancelled. And I kind of regret not going to the cinema to see it now. But, um, that's my history, Gally. Yeah, you've just reminded me about the haircut because it did look like he went into the same barber as Lloyd Christmas, didn't he? You know, the old, uh, <laughs> pumpkin haired freak. But, uh, <laughs> It was a controversial thing. It was discussed at the time as being like this big deal. My mum was a huge, huge fan of The Bodyguard, a huge, huge fan of Whitney Houston. So, Matt, similar to to you and your uncle, which, by the way, your uncle Bruce Lee, fighting triads, undercover (laughs) cop, not really, Dad? (laughs) Undercover. I remember your uncle in Way of the Dragon. Um, (laughs) I don't remember (laughs) how I Yeah. <laughs> Enter the chuck. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's two office references. I'm very happy so far. Within within 15 minutes, which I think is uh, is a record for me. Um, but no, uh, she was a huge huge fan of this, and yeah, the soundtrack which we will discuss was was just completely ubiquitous. Uh, I remember the the sword and the silk scarf. I wonder if it was not just down to watching the film over and over again with my mum. But the music video, I remember it being prominently placed in a very, very important key change in the song, which then obviously meant that I remembered it. Um, but also, in, in, in any kind of big Hollywood romance film, you need that kind of iconic image. And I think that's the one from this I remember. And probably Kevin or Frank Farmer all superheroes have uh, the same initial alliterative um, names. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> um, carrying her out from the horrendous club. I mean, a horrendous club. Yeah. What uh, the fuck is going on? There? Paul Verhoeven wouldn't go to that club. <laughs> Michael Bay wouldn't go. Oh, it, it did look a little bit bad, boys, didn't it, with the old uh, flashing lights? It did, but it didn't um, have a sex swing. But yeah, no. So uh, this one, uh, very much a seen it lots and lots and lots of times with my mum. Haven't seen it since Matt um, suggested. Can we, well, should we do the bodyguard? Patrick, it's time to, to go to story time. Um, Frank Farmer needs to know what's going on. Otherwise he won't take the job and the listeners won't carry on listening if they don't know what's going on in the bodyguard. So would you please regale us with the plot to the bodyguard? Actress and music superstar Rachel Marin is a frightened little lady with an eight year old son who is being sent death threats by a stalker. After a disguised present explodes in her dressing room, her father, Bill, asks bodyguard Frank Farmer to protect her. Frank reluctantly agrees to assess the situation, but is wary that Rachel has a reputation of being a bitch who isn't fully aware of the situation herself. A spoiled diva whose team around her don't believe they should be paying for his services, oblivious to the danger. Bill agrees to Frank's $3,000 a week demands and gets to work, shoring up Rachel's house and grounds while 
clashing with existing security Tony and her PR, Cy, but forms a bond with her son, Fletcher, and trains up her driver, Henry, while Rachel's sister, Nikki, watches on. Rachel thinks Frank is nuts, a fanatic messing with her life who has the gall to suggest a Tuesday morning brunch instead of a Sunday. They clash. Frank's serious demeanour not sitting well with a sassy star. Cy has organised a gig for Rachel but didn't tell Frank and sure enough it goes tits up. A riot breaking out among the crowd who swarm Rachel. Frank carries her to safety as Rachel starts to take the situation seriously now and a bond starts to form between them. But when Rachel asks for some normality and the two go on a quasi-date, they sleep together. Frank going against his idea of professionalism and discipline, he always believed he wouldn't take a permanent position as his feet would go to sleep, and is haunted by a President Reagan shooting for which he blames himself despite not being present. Rachel is upset when Frank expresses his immediate regret and flirts with Frank's former colleague, Greg Portman, in order to make him jealous, but is going through the motions herself. When Rachel receives a threatening phone call, she accepts the true severity and is willing to do whatever Frank says, who takes them to his father's secluded cabin in the mountains, which only strengthens their connection. Rachel feels safe and is falling for Frank, who tries to keep his eye on the job at hand. Fletcher naughtily goes on a boat alone, Frank diving to save him just before a bomb explodes. The stalkers found them, even here. Frank finds a devastated Nikki, who admits she hired a hitman for Rachel, born of years of jealousy, and the hitman breaks in and fatally shoots Nikki before Frank chases him away. But wait, it's not the stalker. Frank's friends at Quantico have already apprehended him, so who is it? After Nikki's funeral... Rachel plucks up the courage to attend the Oscars. She's favourite for Best Actress. But something doesn't feel right. It's tonight. The killer will strike in front of everyone. It's Portman! Rachel takes the stage. Can Frank make it in time? Put his body on the line and save the woman who will always love him. Oh, very good. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. A tear. A tear from my left eye. A single tear. (laughs) Just falling. Yeah. By the way, um, for those that haven't seen the film, just watch it for the kind of like weird, weird, the weird actor who looks like Michael Bay and Andy Dick spliced. No, <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. Michael Bay. <laughs> I hadn't got that. Yeah. He's got Michael Bay hair. He's sniffing the stockings. But he's got Andy Dick's face. It's so weird. It's a, it's a very, very funny, funny, um, little splice. Uh, seriously, I'm going to just go into the way the movie looks because I hadn't seen it in years. But the one thing that came flooding back was how, like, you know, sometimes, um, listeners, you might have heard of like the expression of like, oh, just smear some Vaseline on the lens. Mm, you want to make yeah. it nice and soft and sexy. Um, it's one of the things that I remembered like so vividly was just the look of the movie. Do you not think that the smokiness and the, there's a lot of steam and that reminded me of the Adrian line stuff we talked about in Fatal Attraction and that kind of hooks in the visuals of this to an erotic thriller, even though it's, it's not quite in that genre. I don't think it's more of a romantic drama, but it does have some of the visuals of an erotic thriller. Totally, totally agree, Matt. That's exactly where I was, uh, I was thinking. Uh, and then obviously I, I, I didn't know who had actually directed this. And then lo and behold, it's our friend, friend of the show, Mick Jackson. Um, listeners who have been following the show for donks will remember that me and Devlin drunkenly in Croydon discussed Volcano 
directed by <laughs> Mick Jackson, uh, who as a director, really mainly known for doing documentary style filmmaking. Well, he made Freds, didn't he? Which is a fascinating kind of faux documentary about what would happen if there was a nuclear war uh, impacting on Sheffield. I think it is in the, in the film. It was Sheffield's, it was. yes. Yeah. I remember that being terrifying. Yes. Mick Jackson, British filmmaker. He, he did, um, he did LA story, uh, which is great with Steve Martin. But again, he normally employs a kind of faux documentary style, uh, which in Volcano, me and Devlin discussed, which we thought was an interesting approach to a disaster movie, but it didn't really work for lots of reasons. Volcano didn't work. Um, go back and listen to that if you want to giggle, because I get drunk about an hour in. I'm really off the wagon. You did better than Matt during Jules' drink along. So. <laughs> I just disappear half, halfway through. <laughs> well, I wasn't playing a drinking game, Matt. That's the, that's the difference. Yeah, um, yeah. The way it's shot feels quite conventional. But you're right. I got a lot of Adrian line. I also pulled a little thread, which was the look of, of kind of the way that they, they dress Whitney and the style that they're going for. It's almost like Daft Punk before Daft Punk was Daft Punk. <laughs> yeah. Well, but they was, have the Metropolis little statue reference at the beginning that's that in a music yeah. video. Yes, exactly. And David Fincher was doing this with Madonna at the time. Mm-hmm. I'd done the music video Vogue with her, and he, I think he stuck with her for a while. I think the, the last video he did was Frozen with her, so he, he'd been doing a lot of music videos for Madonna. I thought he, he was kind of taking a lot of that as well. The, 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 the light, the smoke, the blue hue, um, it was very Fincher. Well, could I wax his car quickly? That there was a, in, in, in terms of Mick Jackson, like it's not the name that, that comes up. You don't think of Mick Jackson when you think of the bodyguard, but just as a, uh, just as a way to pray, give him a bit of praise that's probably undue, um, uh, or just, you know, lacking. Uh, there's a great opening shot with him in the, in the car park there. Where he's, uh, you know, the guy that he's guarding. It's actually a, I remember it as a wanna. Is it all, all one shot just coming out? Um, up, there, there is a the... cut eventually, but, um, yeah. it's, it's a wanna to reveal the cleaner. And it's a very neat, you like your introductions, Matt. I think it's a very neat introduction. Well, th- this was great because I, I liked that that was largely silent and, you know, a, a wanna or, a, you know, two shots. It shows that when the director cuts, he's cutting when he wants to, not because he has to due to coverage. And then if you look at the, the bookend, the very final shot of the film, I think is outstanding in, in that bang, kind of banquet hall. And it, it tracks along the table and we find Frank. It's all playing into, uh, the Costner God complex. I think we, we've got the, uh, the crucifix on the right Frank side of the, frame. the middle distance. And yes, yeah, <laughs> with his dead eyes. But, uh, He's, uh, you know, I, I like the way that the, the, the opening shot there has, has all that smoke and steam, as you, as you mentioned. It kind of cranes up, doesn't it? And there's some, there's pipes and, and steam, and I'm not sure why it's there. We tried to figure out why Adrian Lang was doing it, but, uh, I guess it's just atmosphere. Well, when I was younger, you know, I said in, um, history with it, the samurai sword was just cool to me, and I, um, I, it wasn't until I watched it this week that I got the connotation of like sexual reference of the samurai sword of the scarf and realized that something more was going on there just to add to the, uh, like erotic thriller type as well. But I, I kind of saw it more noirish, this film. Watching it last night, it, it became really abundantly clear to me how deeply unimportant the stalker plot really is. 
Um, it's just a device to get these two characters together. And then really we're watching everything from Frank's perspective and it's their interactions that is really where the drama is based. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't need Michael Bay and Andy Dick spliced chasing. I mean, I do because we need Frank in the room. Um, but, but all the kind of like, who, who is it? The mystery of the stalker, the death threats, etc. That was far less interesting to me than the dynamic within her entourage. I mean, Sai, Sai is an interesting character, the publicist. It feels like it's uh, satirical, but also there's a, there's a lot of menace and. Is he the red herring? I think he's the red herring, isn't he? I think, I think you could, you could watch the movie and make a, uh, a theory that he's behind it all. But actually, I just think it's the cynical nature of show business is what he's kind of represented. He doesn't really give a fuck about Rachel. Um, I always wondered what, um, what our friend from Demolition Man, uh, who got grounded, uh, what, is he the manager? Is he, cause I didn't know if he was like a grandfather or well, Bill, Bill's his Bill. dad, isn't I don't know if that's no, ever Bill's explicitly said. Oh, I said there it was a YouTube video, uh, talking about Psy and how Psy could in theory be the mastermind, but I think it's largely bullshit. Um, I don't think he has anything to do with the, no, know, that, the criminality. They'd have, have explained that in the film, surely. Yeah. My, my interest is in Frank and Rachel and also, as I say, the entourage, the sister, I probably would have liked a bit more of the sister because I think that is interesting. It, and it becomes more interesting with her at the cabin and you wish there was it, not so maybe I wanted a bit more heavy handed with her, you know, like some suggestive looks or like more of her frustration throughout. Quite a, Cause a she's, she's there's, quite there's, an interesting character. There's the scene with the ego wall where he goes to visit her and the dog is lying yeah, in front of yeah. the door. And there's a, a bit where Rachel is signing an autograph and Frank tries to stop her and she says, I'm surprised you didn't plug her about the little girl. And in the background of that shot, Nikki is very, um, she's kind of seething. She, she presents the Oscar nomination as well. And with a hint of jealousy there, like, yes, you have, you know, like insinuating that she know that they've, um, they've boinked. Also in that moment, Matt, um, I think Rachel gives her the camera to take the picture and yes. just shoots mm. a look, which is, ah, so this is what I am to you. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the best scene between those two is when she's singing the gospel song. Oh yeah. I, I always, I, I laughed last night because Danielle was like, please stop doing that. As you could tell, I don't need an excuse to start going all full Whitney. But when she's like singing, Jesus loves me. And then Whitney's like, she upstages her even in that moment but it's also quite sweet between them because i don't think rachel means to um i think it's an it's an attempt to be close to her at that point because they had the band together you see it in the black and white picture but all she can do is resent it at that point jesus loves me oh yes he does jesus loves me Oh, yes, he does. Jesus loves me. Oh, yes, he does. For the Bible tells me so. Hey, kiddo. Hey, honey.
So would you have got rid of the whole stalker thing? Like it's it's a way of distracting from what's actually happening. It's a functional it's an, part an of the story. Red herring that kind of half works, but I I don't think you can remove it. I, I think it's necessary to to divert the audience because you're thinking about Sai. You're thinking of, you're probably not thinking about yeah. the sister. Uh, but you're really, you're, you're keyed oh. into the stalker at that point. You're not really thinking about where the story's really going. I just didn't really understand his letters. Like, it, it, we spoke offline about, like, the, the John Lennon um, incident. And if he is a mega fan, but wants her dead. But I didn't believe that. Mm. I didn't believe, you know, like, John Lennon gave a, I don't know, dismissed Chapman. And then he came back at him. But, or so allegedly. And then... This guy, I don't know, the letters felt weird. And I thought at the end it revealed that Nikki was writing them because that would kind of make sense. But Well, she even says, I, those are my words. I yeah, I hate yeah. her, but I don't think she's writing them. I think they just echo her, her sentiments. But it is a bit confusing because I don't think he should have been issuing death threats. He should have just been a creepy guy. If you're going to go in hard on the bodyguard for being a little bit, you know, contrite, it's the hitman stuff. I always used to think in soaps, uh, I used to work on a soap. I used to think to myself, every time a gangster or a hitman is introduced, you're kind of in the creative bankrupt area of, uh, we need like this thing that's going to be super heightened. And I do think that that's the element that it's, it's just less interesting. Well, Kazdan talked about it. A, a little in in terms of it becoming very convoluted. There was a lot of drafts, and I think a lot of the things that are interwoven, it perhaps got too much. Like he didn't want to direct it in the end. He said that I don't want to be the one making sense of all of that, even though it was his script initially. So um, I don't know what they did, but but he he wasn't prepared to take it on as as a director because of the the convolution of, of it all. So how would how would we resolve that? Would we just ditch the hitman element or would you have the hitman element be the only stalker and not have i, I would I, I i felt like i wanted the letters to have come from nikki that that kind of would have felt like they were gonna so when it wasn't from her i was like i was kind of confused from his motives and like you said the stalker kind of it's mishandled in a way the hitman thing i get because nikki i don't think would kill her herself and if she was drawn to that desperation in a barn, I was high. I was, no, I was stoned. I kind of get her motivation and why she'd do that. And perhaps reduce the stalker, the, the, the elements that they did use, perhaps half that and, and just use it as a very quick diversion. Who, who do you think masturbated on the bed, for example? Was that him? The stalker. Oh, that's, that's Michael Bay. Definitely. <laughs> it wasn't Quintus. I better, I better tell Danielle that we're going to get another lawsuit coming in. Um, yeah. <laughs> Because he, he does show when he's Alexander Graham Bell that anyone can get into the complex. So I imagine that that yeah. is the guy writing the letters that did that. that. That's the weakest element. And when I, you know, not to jump straight into Critics Corner because we'll, we'll reserve it, but I saw a lot of the bashing for this. I was surprised. I'll, I'll just say it now. I was surprised at the, the level of, of kind of vitriol and there was a lot of, you know, snidiness. Wait, for the, for the whole film or for the, the element for, we're talking about? For the film. Right. Um, there was a lot of like, oh, it's, it's a, you know, kind of reductive stars getting together. And, and one of the things that I was thinking, thinking about is like, we don't, we do 
the, in 2018, uh, A Star is Born, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, I thought was really successful and I really enjoyed that movie. But we don't get too many of these, like, two stars from different mediums coming together in a movie. You know, because Kevin Costner, we've already discussed it, biggest star at the time, wasn't he? Pretty much, you know, maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger, but Arnold and Whitney would have been, you know, probably stranger than Arnold and Emma Thompson. Well, th- there was a lot of criticism for the uh, the structure because um, it is quite a long film. I can't remember. Is it two hours 15 about about that? No, two hours five, sorry. One, one and, 29, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you when you get to the Oscars, some people feel it's tagged on because you, you've had somewhat of a climactic thing out in the cabin. But I like all of that. I, I'd rather reduce what was going on earlier in the film and keep the structure of, of the cabin and followed by the Oscars. I, I really like those two sections of the film. So I know that the pacing and the length is an issue for some people, as well as the schmaltzy, kind of the, the cheesiness of some of it and uh, how derivative some people regard it. I had a little theory, Matt. To, uh, sorry, I'm jumping way ahead here. But like, because from that showpiece to going to the Oscars. I had a little theory that um, Quintus, Hitman, killed Nicky deliberately in the thing to, to cover his tracks and to get rid of any witnesses. You know, like she's the one who knew that they'd hired a Hitman or whatever, even though she says she doesn't, he doesn't know who it is or she doesn't know who it is to then plan go for the Oscars. Yeah, I know it's dark, but he he would make sure that it was the, the person he was actually going for. So that did feel intentional and... Yeah, it did. It did because the way that she describes him, he's like the Terminator. He won't stop until she's dead. <laughs> Do you think it's egotism between Portman and Frank, and uh, there's a real battle between the two of them? He wants to kill her in front of the cameras to show up Frank Farmer. Yeah, there's a there's a dick swinging competition going on between the two of them. And again, you would maybe maybe you introduce him earlier. Maybe the way to have solved it would have been to have Frank either be approached by him or blame him for Reagan. Or, bla- or or have that. I mean, maybe that makes it so too obvious. Yeah. I don't know. There, there would have been a big to and throw, but I would have thought introduce him earlier as maybe maybe one of the cops who's in. You know, have him and Uncle Frank instead of Uncle Frank and just some guy. They, they mention it though when um when Bill Bill says when he's approached him like he goes, what, what about Portman? He does mention him at the beginning of the film. Yeah, and yeah, Portman is one of the guys that they could hire, and and Portman's name crops up here and again. I, I think there's 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 not an overt thing between them, but he's a bit flippant when he talks about the Reagan thing. He says it wasn't your fault; you weren't even there, and that was when they buried his mother. That was the reason he wasn't there. So it, it's all tied into this big traumatic thing, and Portman's a bit flippant about it. But I don't know. Quintus can be that way though. Who will carry me? Yeah. Him? Yes. <laughs> Gladiator, for those listeners that don't know Quintus. <laughs> Portman in this movie. Why didn't he kill her in Miami? Yes. Why didn't he kill her in Miami? He had a perfect opportunity. Was he Was he going to like rough play it and then kill her there? I think it's a psychosexual thing. Imagine it's the guy that wants to sleep with her and then and then get, get away with killing her. It's the it's mm-hmm. a strange, odd kind of thing that was driving him. I think he's a peculiar fella. He could have just poisoned the drink, got away with it. No problem, couldn't he? Yeah, he didn't, he didn't need to make a show of it, did he? Yeah. Mm. Un- unless it was specified by, by like, during the hiring uh, that, that you know, she says she's stoned in that bar. Who knows? Maybe she's uh, articulated that she this should be a public her, thing. Yes, yeah, some kind of public death, which is – it gets very dark at that 
at that point. It's not in the movie, but you can read in. You can read in. Mm, mm. Well, it leads me to an interesting question. Um, so we'll, we'll save our sandwiches on our thoughts on Whitney. But before we go into Whitney, I wanted to ask the question. And I have rules, listeners. So pin your ears back. <laughs> I've got a question for you. Best, worst, and oddest musicians to movie. Now, God, here's the rules. Rule number one. They must be known as a singer or musician before starring in a film. Okay? So, for example... um. I said J-Lo would be on the periphery because she was in movies before she then did music. In fact, she was a dancer, then movies, then music, but she's a triple threat. You could probably say J-Lo is in there because she's fantastic and out of sight, but I'm going to say J-Lo doesn't count, if that's okay, because she breaks rule number one. Rule number two, must be a named role cannot be a cameo so for those bruce springsteen fans who love him in high fidelity can't can't have him he's playing bruce springsteen in high fidelity and it is a cameo um but it is a wonderful cameo so is everyone happy with the rules so whitney houston she's in she's in she can be in best worst or oddest but for example you can't have like um Oh, okay, help me out, guys. Uh, just a random cameo of someone rocking up into a movie. Alice Cooper in Wayne's World. Yeah, yeah, or Aerosmith in Wayne's World too. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, if you book them, they will come. Yeah. <laughs> Which I've tried to get Aerosmith on the show, and they, they literally will not come. So it's <laughs> you tell him, Fibs, Wayne. Um, well, or the naked Indian guy. <laughs> Which I thought it was a bit trive. <laughs> to see the crack in the Indian's arse. <laughs> there we go. Um, I'm full of references today, too. Um, so, Patrick, you've got a, a best, worst, and oddest. I haven't had time to prep for this. Sorry, I must have missed the messages. Have I, um, um, well, I'm immediately drawn to your episode of um, The Faculty with Usher. <laughs> Ah, oddest or worst? <laughs> worst. Gotta be the worst. <laughs> One of the best for me is, um, Billingsley's dad on Friday Night Lights. I think he's terrific. Um, and he's, he's really good. He's a country and western star, but I, I'm also a big fan of Flea in, I think Flea is great in everything he appears in. Um, what, oddest? What about, um, <laughs> what about, um, oh, What's her name in Taken? No, drink. Oh, uh, drink. Holly, Holly Valance. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. That's kind of an odd one. It's an odd It's It's very odd that they got Holly Valance because, you know, two two cracking singles, but I would hardly say she was, you know, she's not dealt a good room. There's, there's a deep cut <laughs> reference. I think best, I like Dre and Snoop in Training Day. Mm. Uh, oh, okay. I, I think that's a cool one. That, that I, I love really Snoop and just... Starsky and Hutch, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a versatile actor, Patrick. Uh, I think oddest could be Debbie Harry in Videodrome, uh, which works, um, I think. And I think worst could be Madonna in Body of Evidence, in spite of seeing it a hundred times. 
Madonna in um, what was the what was the Ben Affleck film? I thought you were going to say Swept Away, the the Guy Ritchie directed one that was a was a nightmare. You could also go Madonna and Die Another Day, or anything really. She's good in Evita. She is good, yeah. and she's good in uh, A League of Their Own as well. She's very good in that. Okay. So I think Madonna. She's got more misses than hits, but I think um, she's she's probably one of the kind of prominence. You you got to look at Dolly Nine to Five. Dolly's fantastic mm. in Nine to Five. Yeah, what are your three, Gally? Did you narrow it down? Well, there's so many, so I thought I'd leave it open for listeners to get back to us who listen to the show with their suggestions. But one of the one of the best for me, and it's recent, so there's probably some recency bias, but I thought Lady Gaga was phenomenal in House of Gucci. I thought she was so good. Because I thought you were going to say ah, Star is Born. Me too. No, no, Star no, no. See, a, so A Star is Born, I think, okay, you're in your lane because, you know, how hard could it be to essentially relive your lived experiences, so to speak? Um, House of Gucci, she is so funny and, but also so believably mad that, uh, I just thought it was a genuine performance that uh, the whole film is just, if you've not seen it, listeners, it's not a good movie, but I had a fucking rollicking time with it because it is so, I mean, you could tell that Ridley Scott was like, oh, just just do whatever you want. I mean, it really is one of those kind of movies where they've just gone, I'm just going to take the piss out of this fashion world because it's a load of nonsense. Yeah, he really is doing it uh, on purpose, I think. And she's great. She's she's up for it. So I think um, Lady Gaga for me, but again, recency bias. There, there are way more dramatic roles that have been fantastic. And we'll talk I about I like Whitney. Eminem in 8 Mile. Eminem's good in 8 Mile. Yeah, yeah again, he's very good. He's in his, he's in his lane and we can talk about Whitney being in her lane for this. Um, worst, worst. Oh, I mean, I think Rihanna's pretty bad in Battleship, but then Ooh. everyone's bad in Battleship. Um, mm. I think you're right with Usher. I, th- I can't think of a worse performance <laughs> by someone who is supposed to. Like it's, it might be Usher. I, I do want to hear some more options if the listeners, because there'll be there's got to be something like, oh yeah, God, I forgot mm. about that. What about uh, the lead singer from Red Hot Chili Peppers and Point Break is is Ham Neal? <laughs> oh yeah, when he gets his foot blown off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, our listeners, I'm I'm interested. Oddest though, Devlin wanted his in before we move on from the section, uh, listeners. His was Henry Rollins as the kiddie ice hockey coach in the terrifying Michael Keaton zombie snowman family festive comedy, Jack Frost. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, which uh, is is very odd. I've got, to, I've got two more. I've got two oh, more. Oh, go on then. Um, You've, you found two more. Go on then. Not like bad, David. Um, one I really like is Meatloaf in Fight Club. Yes, Meatloaf's great. That's, that's a brilliant one. Um, and I, I was quite pleasantly surprised by Harry Styles in Dunkirk. Looking forward to his new film. Uh, there was a couple of names there that, that cropped up, but I couldn't think of a movie. Uh, Streisand, Streis, not Streisland, Streisand. I did a bit of um, licorice pizza there. Uh, Diana Ross and Cher. Uh, were names that came up in terms of when uh, the bodyguard was initially being developed as well. So they were all singers first. Um, so back in the 70s when Steve McQueen's name was being thrown around and Ryan O'Neill's name was being thrown around, this is well known, but Ryan O'Neill and Diana Ross were set to make it, I think, with John Borman in the 70s. And they had a real-life twi- uh, tryst 
and Diana Ross fell out with him and it meant that the movie was scrapped. So uh, that was, it was actually one of Lawrence Kasdan's early scripts. So it goes way back to the seventies, this movie. But I thought it was, what was interesting about that was that it was still an interracial romance, even back in the seventies when they were going to make it between Diana Ross, who was the Whitney Houston of her time. And uh, Ryan O'Neill. Boston was very adamant on Whitney Houston. Mm, he was, he was, and um, and I, I'm going to give Mick Jackson a lot of credit because I, and this is a preference thing. I understand that some people might want um want like deep to be deeper, but I like the fact that it's just completely like normal. There is no. Like, we're going to make a big deal about the fact that Kevin Costner is white and Whitney Houston is black. It's just, it's, and what? There isn't, there just, there's never even a discussion, uh, if, if about the only poly, uh, like difference is that he likes country music and she does pop. <laughs> that's about, that's about as radical as it gets. Now, I know for some people that would be like, well, yeah, you're missing some fertile ground there to be explored. But I liked the fact that it just was seen as not an issue. Because why would it be? I don't know what your thoughts. I thought it was quite progressive for 92 that they just wouldn't even... Are they doing that because they don't think it's a big deal? Or are they doing that because they don't want to touch it with a you know 10-foot barge pole? There's only, I, I could only really see one reference to race like explicitly in a sentence. It was um farmer says to the driver, Henry, doesn't he? It's like, it's always someone who gets hit and it's the cocky black driver. Uh Yeah. And I was trying was kind of waiting for more um reddish relation commentary throughout the film. Um well maybe that's quite revealing because that's that's quite a light moment. I listened to one podcast where where uh, one of the hosts was was slightly offended by that comment and uh, I think he was African American so I'm you know who am I to say but I didn't feel like there was how often have we said in reviews I don't think there's any malice there and I do think that was just a light-hearted moment between two characters. And I kind of put it down to Frank, um, Farmer's character, you know, he's very straight and says it as it is. And I put it down to that, but also to build, he's kind of building a rapport with Henry. He seems to like him, um, from the off, which is, is, is nice. But, um, I, I, I suppose I, I wondered if, if there's talk of a remake for the last 10 years of this. And I wonder if they were to play the same, uh, like cast similar roles, similar people would, would there be more of a commentary on that in, because is it, I get what you're saying, Gunn, it's going power and progressive that it's not made a deal of at the time, but uh, a lot of films think it is important to make a deal of, of uh, inspirational and maybe the nineties. What, what did we speak of before? Like the, uh, when were the LA riots and, and things were quite, you know, big OJ. and OJ LA at the riots. time and to see like a really powerful black lead actress was not common then and with a white you know in a white interracial relationship it wasn't common and a black woman worthy of love of a white man as well it's quite a big thing there was the pelican brief which was uh denzel washington and julia roberts which i think came the year after and the the story there is that denzel vetoed a love scene with julia roberts because it would piss off female african-american audiences so I don't know how much of that is true, but that's the story. Uh, Spike Lee's Jungle Fever was the year before The Bodyguard, and that kind of dealt with things too. 
Uh, the other one I noted down was Cinder Williams, who was opposite Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton in One False Move. And then you can kind of keep going back. There was the Omega Man in 71. What about Grace Jones in the 80s as well? Yeah, Grace Jones with Roger Moore. Ah, that was to a kill. Yeah. We talked about that. And, and in Conan. Conan. Yeah. And in Conan. Yeah. I, I, I'll, here, I will say this though, Matt. It's strange. And again, this is just from my perspective, but there are certain actors and performers where race just doesn't, just doesn't seem to register. Denzel is one of them. Denzel Washington is one where I never look at Denzel Washington as anything other than Denzel Washington. Will Smith's another one. Is it a case of stars transcending race? To I degree? think so. And I think Whitney, you could argue Whitney Houston also transcends it. And actually, interestingly, if you haven't seen the, uh, the latest documentary, I think it's called Whitney on Whitney Houston. They, they, they explore the idea that the African American community did reject her for the largest portion of her early career oh, because really? she yeah because she didn't do gospel so they felt like she was being too she was pandering too much to to white conservative music which you know pop music essentially uh, and then as she grew as a star she was able to kind of pull that back because she started off as a gospel singer gosh it's a fascinating period isn't it in, in history like her and oj and that time it's uh, in almost seems precarious you can see the 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 impact in terms of the love scenes being removed apparently there are two love scenes here sex scenes between costner and houston and costner was quoted as saying that they were too passionate and they were too revealing in that sense i had too I much that, passion <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> couldn't be contained but i know that me and galley have slightly different views on this do you think a sex scene would have added much patrick or uh are you kind of okay with it the way it is i think we got a sex scene in um you know we mentioned the kind of the erotic thriller like sheeting and noirish cleaning i like i said when i was younger the samurai sword thing was just a cool thing to me when i was younger now i see the symbolism in it's a, it's a, it's sex yeah, she's holding it up against his chest and prods it. For me, it actually suits the film and suits their relationship and, and the style of it. And I, I really quite like that scene very much. And for me, no, I don't need a sex scene after. Um, they, they kiss. There's a great 360 kiss, which is passionate and quite, quite, you know, um, sexy as well at the end and full of the films about love, I think, and giving into one another. But, no, I, I don't need the, um, as Matt described it offline, the, the backlit blue hue Tony Scott love scene. Patrick, I, I agree with you. Um, hmm. and I have two, two reasons. One, I do think that the, the samurai sword silk scarf is just I, iconic. And yeah. if you're going to remember anything from the bodyguard, you'll, you'll likely remember that interaction. Um, the other reason I, I think it doesn't need a sex scene is and maybe this is me looking looking at the film still through impressionable young eyes is that it means that the ending when she jump when she gets off the plane and they kiss it's like boiling it's like making a chili let me use this analogy when you make a chili you put it to the boil and if you put it on too much it starts spitting at you and it hurts it burns you when you're trying to stir it what you want is a gradual boil and then you're gonna get a delicious chili to me that is that's remove the sex scene the slow well, yeah because in a way we're we, we're we're withholding aren't we uh a little bit 
so we don't see it. But we never see it. If we saw it at the end, then that might be the case. But we don't want to see it because the kiss at the end. It me. I guess it's like a level of pure. Kissing it, isn't sex. I know, but it's pure. It's pure. <laughs> it's pure. It's, it's purity, Matt, did, isn't it? Do you want to see like full penetration? Or <laughs> no, no. I think that they bottled it a bit, and I do think it was it was a, a racial factor, and I mm. think that they should have gone full on Tony Scott, blue hue, slight nipple, <laughs> uh, but tasteful. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it puts some kind of a Whitney, um, instrument, not her singing over it. That would be too much, but some kind of an instrumental version <laughs> singing over your own love scene. Would you have preferred the deleted scene than when he undresses her to at post Metropolis gig? Yeah, that, that's a fantastic scene. I think that's, that would have helped the film more than a sex scene, actually. The, it's in the TV version where it, it's where, uh, just after the Queen of the Night, a sequence where he rescues her from the club and he takes her to bed and he undresses her, takes off those boots and her stockings and her kind of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, corset thing and, uh, kind of lays it, lays her down. And there's no, the, the, there's not a sexual element as such, but there's, there's, uh, isn't there? there's a tension between them because she's kind of in a, in a, in a zombie state because she's been traumatized by that and he takes care of her in a non-sexual way and it's actually a, a really great scene that's in the tv version it's in our playlist and uh, you can check it out on youtube mm. if you're interested mm. well let's let's talk whitney because uh i thought it was i thought she's i think she's really good in this i think she's very natural she's got she's got good sass and I just think to myself, like at the time, you're Whitney Houston. Yes, you're a huge star, but you've never, you've never been in a film. You never should, you know, like just the mechanics of filmmaking can are daunting because they are, because it's a painful process. And I thought it was interesting that Mick Jackson, when I read in, uh, some of the, some of the trivia, uh, that he, he told her not to take acting lessons, which I thought was interesting because he wanted her to be natural. You want to just be yourself. And the other, one of the directions he gave her was to treat each scene like a song, which again, I just think that's really good directing, you know, keep her thinking about something that she's comfortable with because this is completely alien. And then she's up against Kevin Costner, who, you know, we've discussed previously, maybe not the most giving actor, uh, certainly, uh, when it comes to, you know, he's a very introverted performer. He's not, he's not gonna, you know, go big for you. So you have to react to his, his kind of acting ticks. And I think Whitney does a, a really good job. You know, she's, I don't think she's been stretched too much. You know, this is very much a comfortable space for her and a comfortable character, but where she has to be dramatic, where she has to show distress, where she has to show show strength. I think she really, she really delivers. It's a shame she didn't do more. I would have liked to have seen her do more, more films, if I'm honest. I haven't seen uh, Waiting to Exhale, which is another one of hers, but I I do think here there, there are ups and downs. She does have some weak moments. I think when she's being, trying to be completely earnest and her guard is down and she's very plaintive and she's asking Frank for help. She's retracting her previous anger and frustrations, like when she's smoking, uh, outside in Miami. Uh, I don't always believe everything she's saying. You can see that she's untrained as an actress, but overall as a performance, I really buy mm. it. And, and she's got a confidence and an insouciance mm. and she's got really great eyes, like physically. She's, she could be a movie star. She looks really great on screen. And this is probably the best era of, of 
Whitney, like physically. I just thought it was really cool that she's been immortalized in 1992 in a film like this. Mm. Looking yeah. at how her life went on after. Yeah. It. Isn't it great that we've got this moment? It's interesting her. you say that as well, Matt. I forgot to mention, um, regardless of what you think of her performance, she's extremely photogenic. Like she looks incredible in the film. And, and if she wasn't a singer, she would have probably been a, a an actor based on just sheer charisma on screen. She's got it, hasn't she? She's got the thing. I like it when she's really cocky, like when she says, uh, I want that broad run out of town, like the Oscars when she's singing her song, like when she when she leans into that stuff. I don't like it one bit that you look skinnier than me. All, all those little touches, really cool. And the way it's shot that we mentioned does give a... A kind of dreamlike state as well. There's, she's backlit and hazy mm. in her performances and there's something quite, I mean, the iconography is certainly there, but it, she just, I don't know, it feels like you're watching someone really special. Well, I was thinking of The Crow, you know, we, we talked about it on The Crow and I think something else that, uh, The Misfits, we talked about it, mm. this idea that someone is no longer with us and, uh, it just adds another layer to everything. Uh, quite a sad, thing to contemplate but i'm just really pleased that that she was immortalized this way it reminded me of like things like james dean in things like giant mm. and and rebel without a cause it's like he, he that was him and this but it's is not her. only this it, it's the album that goes along with it like it's a complete package performance at uh, this yeah. time for her because yeah. the music's so tied to the movie i think it just works Look. Terrifically. I don't want to go all Patrick Bateman like you, you've got a Whitney Houston album. <laughs> um, you, you, you like Whitney Houston. But, uh, I think the music in it is really yeah. good. Like it's really good pop songs. Like Queen of the Night is just like a, a rollicking mm. good track, isn't it? It's like En Vogue, yeah, isn't it? It's, it really it is. Like yeah. And, um, the other thing as well that I thought, um, I thought about watching the movie, uh, again, and you, you're absolutely right about the immortalized forever is, she was pregnant during this, which Whoa. is why they shoot her. You may have noticed that they, there's a lot of, uh, certainly at the Oscars, they shoot her pretty much mid. Um, you don't, you know, you don't get too many full body shots. And I wonder, you know, the bit where she's in like a sports kind of bra, maybe that was early in the production because yeah, she looks, she's in incredible shape. But, um, unfortunately she had a miscarriage, right. which, uh, which is a shame, um, on the, during the during the production but just to know as well she had that going on just makes it made me uh watching it last night with danielle just go you know total respect for like taking the role and and i think she delivers what she needs to and she helps kevin costner as much as he helps her i think because he's reacting to her it's not just a you know two people in a room two planks of wood what was the one I think uh, Mark Commode called uh, Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley two chairs mating? It's not quite like that. It's an Orlando Bloom, he called it, an IKEA Knightley. Orlando Bloom. Orlando Bloom. Yeah. But they they definitely have a chemistry, the two of them together. Uh, and I do like I like their date scenes, and it I I feel that's where Costner's warmth finally kind of comes out, and it's nice the two of them. But there's one bit in that date. That, that I found quite revealing where she thinks that he's the last girl that he loved was killed. Mm. And, uh, he plays into that thing that, uh, mm. it didn't really happen, but he plays, he plays into it and he says, no, um, good guess though, or, or something. And in a lesser movie, I think that would have been the plot yeah, that yeah. he lost his previous love 
Yeah. Uh, but in this movie, it knows not to go that daft with, with things. And it just mm. plays into a funny little moment where he lightens up. And I love how he lightens up at the cabin. And she says, it's good to see you laugh. You know, all that stuff at the cabin shows the other side. Do you mind if I ask? Do you mind if I don't answer? I don't want to pry. Boy, <laughs> I can see She didn't die, did she? <laughs> While you were protecting her, she got killed, right? <laughs> God, that's not it, is it? That's it, isn't it? Nobody's perfect. I'm sorry, Frank. I'm sorry. No. Nice try, though. Frank. <laughs> it was less dramatic than that. She didn't love me anymore. Can you imagine that? Yeah, and that um that reveal or that uh kind of misdirection with that story, Matt, um could have been played as cruel, but Costner I think he's he's handles that well and it makes her feel at ease that he's able to kind of open up a touch. And I'm gonna I'm gonna retract a statement that I made when we when we did Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, because rewatching Bodyguard, I think I I dismissed him as a performer for kind of leading leading man certainly leading leading man love uh or romantic lead um because i i said that he needs a big ass hit song <laughs> uh in order to 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 kind of genuinely deliver uh or a believable uh romance i disagree i'm going to retract that statement because actually i think in the bodyguard he is doing what the character requires he's stoic he's quiet Kevin Costner loves a fucking Western and he's essentially treating Frank Farmer as the kind of the hired gun who comes in to reestablish, you know, law and order. And he's not somebody who's going to kind of start melting away because he sees Rachel once. But the, the, the key scene is when he's watching, I want to run to you. And Whitney is literally running towards <laughs> him in the video, which is just. Isn't that's that a great way to get that song in. <laughs> that's cinema, Matt. That's cinema. Uh, but that, you know, he, he leans into the screen and you know, from that moment, he doesn't, his, his expression doesn't change, but he leans in. And from that moment, he's like, I can see why this woman, uh, is, is so successful and why people love her. And I, and, and then it's like, and I'm starting to love her. But also, it's also Farmer's relationship with the son, with Fletcher. I think that, um, you kind of understand. I don't know, like, how can I understand it? I don't. But from a story terms, I understand that she's watching someone be a father figure who's taking care of her son and is drawn to him that way as well as feeling. She says there's a line that is important of how he makes her feel and it's it's obviously got a double meaning that it's, I feel really safe and it's the security of, like, a lover and a security of the bodyguard as well. And I completely get her attraction to him it's just funny that 
it, he's a tough nut to crack, but I do. What, what do you think about what after they've set together? Like it is, I kind of felt like Costner was a bit lower key as well to let her shine and, and perform. But when he needs to go big, he does and he shouts at her or whatever. But after, after he's slept with her and regrets it, I, I think his performance gets stronger there. And uh, the, the cabin stuff is where it opens up for me. Like I like meeting Frank's dad. And, uh, you know, he's been the stoic, strong, silent type. And I think the, the film needed the other side of the coin to, to show him lighten up a bit where he makes the dog bark and he's sort of laughing unguarded for the first time. And he talks about the loss of his mom and there's the chess game and all, all of that stuff. Um, I, I think immediately post-coital stuff, he, he doesn't handle it incredibly well, but the sentiment is right. He can't protect her and be with her in that sense. So he has to draw a line. Uh, Matt, uh, Alan Rook, who it is award, uh, <laughs> Frank's dad, <laughs> you got to recognize him from my favorite Rennie Harlan movie. He's, he's the smiling assassin. Frank smiling assassin. In Cliffhanger. You can't say assassin. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know, I can't. So listeners, if you haven't seen Cliffhanger for a long, long time, one, what you're doing, please watch Cliffhanger. But the scene, the, you know, the tragic scene right at the beginning where, um, <laughs> Uh, Rooker's Rooker's girlfriend smiling, uh, uh, falls to her death. <laughs> it's like he's gurning. He, he's he's supposed to be holding the rope in grimace, but it comes across as a sinister laugh, <laughs> as if he's like shaking the shaking the the wire. To- <laughs> as soon as it got pointed out, I can't watch Cliffhanger in that scene and feel the loss. I just laughed, which is such a shame. He gets an he gets a kind of similar cutaway in this when um. He, he hears the gunshots and it turned, it comes, his name's, um, Ralph Waite. It cuts to him and he's like, <sighs> <laughs> he does the gun again. He is very good in Cool Hand Luke, which is his first film, I think. And Five Easy Pieces was another one. He's actually a, a pretty good actor, I think. Can I, can I say that I enjoy the scene where he's, he's, he's apologizing in, in, in the way that only kind of a gentle old man can apologize. And it's like, I hear your, you're quite, um, you're a singer. And he's like, uh, I'm afraid I have no idea who you are. Uh, which I thought was, you know, again, it was a nice touch. He's cutting carrots. He's making dinner. I just thought it was nice. And, um, all the cabin stuff does feel like, I like it, Matt. I wouldn't want that cut out, especially the Costner dive. I mean, 9.6. Fantastic. Well, on, uh, on the dad not recognizing her, I thought that was quite an interesting point because th- this, she does feel safe here and it is a world that she's not familiar with. You know, I mean, I, I can never imagine it, but she's been surrounded by people. That's why he kicks out Cy and Tony and he just wants her away from it all. And I imagine it's quite nice for her to, to go somewhere like that. And it's really interesting juxtaposition that is from Cy's belief that he's like, if she doesn't do this, she dies. She needs to perform. She needs the money. But like the people who, uh, she's performing to want to kill her in a way, you know, like there's an interesting thing on the power of the star and part of me wonders if Whitney Houston was attracted to that element to it, having some sort of idea of, you know, not having a normal life and, and, and being out there. I thought that was an important part of the film. And also I, I was reminded of that new Britney Spears documentary. I watched, I don't know if you saw that. It was like how the life of a pop star can just be a complete nightmare and nothing that you expect it to be. So maybe it was a way of kind of cathartically getting 
some of that stuff out for Whitney. And but there's more there's more Ruku they are, Gally. Oh go on, go on. Ruku they are now, we've changed it. <laughs> Ruku it is, Ruku they are. Well I've got several in this film. Like the Tony, the security guard, he's he's the guy in Dumb and Dumber that's like, how how the hell do you know I got uh, I got gas? <laughs> Yes, he, he is. He's also uh, he's also the the, co- the 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 late night commandant in Goodfellas who uh, who gets him into the deal. You, you're looking at him. You're looking at security. <laughs> if you look at his IMDb, half of the characters uh, he plays are called Tony. Yeah, brilliant. It's just Tony, 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 all the way down. We should give his real name then, shouldn't we? Which is Mike Star. Oh, Mike Star. Yes, we should. Well done. I've got one more for you. It's Uncle Frank from Home Alone and from hey, uh, Cocktail. It's good money. I wanted him to say when he was like, uh, how are you getting on with the investigation? We're cooking! <laughs> <laughs> always, as Matt said, he's always after money. He's always a yeah. fucker. He's a miser in well, everything. Yeah, oh, when I saw him, because I did, I did not remember Uncle Frank being in this, but I was just like, you cannot, you literally cannot watch him in anything without thinking about your little pipsqueak. You see what I <laughs> Every scene is in three scenes here, I think, and each time it's like, mm. oh, good money, huh? It's good money, huh? As we're nearing the end of the, the film, I suppose, um, like, Costner's done it again with the editing. Uh, really, I don't know whether you're, you're aware of what happened in post-production, but they, the, um, uh, Jackson had edited it, he gave his director's cut, it was like two hours 20, two hours 25, and Warner Brothers, and, because Costner was a producer along with um, Kazdan and is it Williams? I'm trying to remember the other one. They wanted to re-edit mainly to bring the, the, the time down. But Costner actually has it in his contract. Like if he's unhappy with the edit, he has like a clause to say he can go and re-edit things, which is, I mean, like power. You said power there. But Whitney Houston, um, like Costner was what the top two biggest actors in the world at the time as we mentioned as well and um yeah so the the three producers went in to to re-edit um and it was mainly to do with the time and i think that's why you get the undressing uh scene that hasn't come out uh, that's that wasn't in it as well and um but apparently but this time like unlike uh, reynolds jackson was allowed in the room but apparently he's he allowed was in dis- <laughs> So funny, yeah. isn't it? You but sit like over there. Said, <laughs> a watch. You watch. <laughs> <laughs> the, the LA Times said he wasn't very happy about it. No, um, I can imagine. And they didn't always listen to, to his um, opinion. But So note to self, anyone anyone who wants to make... You know what, Kevin? I, if I could ask him one question, I'd be like, why the fuck didn't you do that on Man of Steel? Lock him out of the edit room and edit it down, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> He'd lost his clout by then. Like he should have just made it himself. If he's going to do that, just direct it yourself, Kevin. Strange, but like Kasten's a director. The the other producer, I can't, I'm just trying to find his name. I'm really sorry, but he's and like there's a quote here that's saying that there was a zillion things that they wanted to look at in the edit, and and really it was just the runtime, and they wanted to rethink parts of the movie. Um, what was Jim it? Wilson was is the other producer, Patrick. Jim Wilson. Wilson, not Williams, thank you. Mm. Um, it, I don't know, it didn't seem to re-edit the story. I think it was just... Just time the then. Running just cutting time. for time. Mm. Really? Well, and well, I, I suppose that speaks to Matt, uh, and we've, we've praised Mick Jackson, um, but it speaks to the fact that 
he's he shot the film in a way that means that the edits are pretty locked in you know he hasn't yeah. shot, you know yeah. so therefore trying to trim it you're gonna have to remove a scene you can't make little little cuts here and there to save you know 10 seconds here 15 seconds over there um i think it's telling that we don't get a director's cut is because the film's done really really well like commercially maybe not critically at the time but it's, it made loads of money it's done really well and it's seen as this like iconic film uh particularly for the second biggest grossing film of 92 behind yeah. aladdin which that, yeah to be honest with you i couldn't believe you know i knew that aladdin was big i didn't know it was that big but it's, yeah. it's this enduring love story like titanic that we spoke about the love story really captured an audience and this really captured an audience and and the both of them especially and I think it shows that I'm going into my sandwiches and, and final thoughts a little bit, but there is big audience for uh somewhat, I think contrives a rude word for this film, but formulaic solid love story that it, it taps into to something. There's something magical about seeing stars. I, I guess it's the, the believable, believable, yeah. like Believ- believable stars getting together and, and you cut away from all the, you know, this isn't marriage story where we're actually going to dissect what real relationships are like. This is like that moment. It's, it's, it's like Mick Jackson said, Whitney Houston play scene like a song. This film is like one big song. This is what a song makes you feel like at the end of it. You, you feel enraptured and the feeling is what you get from it. Not necessarily like, you know, Frank Farmer, bit of a closed book can imagine two or three years, maybe even months. They split up. But I also like the fact that in the movie, it's almost implied that it's unrequited. They don't get together, but they've shared love. That's how I read it. You know, he's off now doing his own thing. Unrequited, maybe not, but maybe not unrequited, but there's an element of like, we had our time. We, you were the thing, you were the thing for me that saved my life and they both saved each other's lives in the, in the but time that they spent all along. But they, and they have to part. They ways. have to part, which is in a way almost more romantic. A la Titanic, you know, again, same thing where you are saying Torn apart by circumstance, circumstance, indeed, indeed. Although there's a part of me that would have been interested. Would it have been too cliche for farmer to have actually died? I don't know if that would have made the movie stronger. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. you wrap it up like that and go straight to her outro song and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, looking sad on the plane or whatever. <laughs> not even having that scene or having a new bodyguard, the elderly bodyguard. The elderly bodyguard. He doesn't trust her with. And then just <laughs> end it. I like the ending. I think, uh, on our way from the Oscars party, we need to stop off, Matt. I picked up my goodie bag. I've got my $35,000 worth of freebies. But I don't have Critics Corner in there. I need to know what they said. So please tell us. Well, uh, Siskel and Ebert, our favourites, uh, they were interested in the contrasting personalities of the two lead characters. This is Ebert first. Uh, when she's mobbed at the club, he called that one of the most effective scenes. I do like that Queen of the Night sequence, so I'm in agreement with him there. Ebert found the thriller elements less interesting than the tension between the two different personalities. He called it a contrived surprise ending, which I still don't understand. It's no more contrived than anything else in the film. Uh, I like the Oscar stuff, and it, it does make sense to me, so I was disagreeing with him there. Um, there was this thing where Costner was going to um, bring the, the cocky black chauffeur, as he calls him, 
back for the final sequence uh, where there would be a car chase uh, instead of the Oscar sequence. And that's why all that stuff with him doing 180s and him teaching him to drive, all that stuff there was going to be set up and pay off for a final elaborate car chase. Um, but I think that was vetoed. That was Costner's... Um, alternative to the Oscars stuff, which was, it's amazing to me that these things aren't fully thought through and they just sort of happen like, oh, we'll just do the Oscars thing instead. But uh, I, I don't think he was keen on that. Uh, Siskel called it a respect story, not a love story. Uh, we're not going to see them roll around in bed together, he said. Uh, what you see is a grudging admiration for the skills of the others, which kind of makes sense. Um, he's, he's I, I hear him. I hear what he's saying this time, which is you know, unusual. Uh, two charismatic stars, great to look at. She's glamorous, he said. Costner does his American Boy Scout thing. Uh, and Mick Jackson, uh, maker of LA Story, understands the Hollywood LA stuff and how everyone is battling for power, the manager, the publicist, and the people looking after Rachel. So uh, I also have a mystery guest reviewer. Uh, I'm just going to put a quote in here. A startling reminder of how much more fun mainstream cinema was when it was dictated by the whims of coke-fueled, out-of-touch producers than algorithms. Absolutely baffling car crash of celebrity star power and sanitized, loopily plotted thriller gubbins. The furor over Costner having sacrificed the mullet will never not be funny. Anyone want to guess the reviewer? Oh, is that Sir Matt Ridley? No, it was Sir Christopher of Devlin's of the Rewind Movie Podcast, uh, a.k.a. Devlin oh. Does Drawing. Uh, you can find him on uh. uh, Letterboxd. I think Gubbins is a bit harsh, as was loopily plotted, but I still like him more than Siskel and Ebert. I'm with Siskel all the way, because one of the things that I think Costner is able to always portray in, in most of his roles, especially roles where he's, he's single-minded and he's got... He's very good at doing competence, mm. like... You believe that he is a very, very adept and skilled at whatever the thing he is. So in JFK, I believe he's a very good district attorney. Yeah. Like I really do. And the untouchable. Yeah, untouchable. He's too. solid, isn't he? Costner, man, this era of Costner was fucking great. He do, he does that well. And I think that is actually spot on about the two skills, you know, the grudge and respect. I think yeah. that's probably actually far better than what I'd written. Maybe Siskel should be a professional critic. I don't know. You should take up podcasting. We should take up podcasting. Uh, R.I.P. Um, well, uh, before, before all of that, um, Patrick, I believe that we have some questions to ask. Yes. Pop quiz assholes. Ah. Oh, I thought you were going to go for no, no. <laughs> that could be a buzzer. Well, I want to hear what your buzzers are. Well, there you go. That's my buzzer. No. <laughs> I'll go with, um, this guy knows nothing about show business. <laughs> oh, I love that line when he's like, Wait, brunch on a Tuesday. Where'd you get Where'd this you guy? Get <laughs> <laughs> that line is fucking, I've got some funny lines I actually wrote down just before the quiz, which with the letter, you know, the, like the ransom letter, hmm. the guys, the FBI guys are looking at it like a lot of work went into this. A lot of work. <laughs> 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 Let's just glued onto a fucking bit of paper. Um, yeah, that made me laugh. And there was what? Was there one more? My favorite lines. Oh, uh, superstars um, in their boudoirs. Did you see it? Superstars in their boudoirs. <laughs> but then there was also a, a little bit of, I don't know, some a strange thing where, uh, at the end, 
like Rachel was like, when your time is up, is up, screw it. Mm. Like a day after Nikki's fucking funeral and she's right. just give it, you know, that's a strange thing. I wonder if they line. told her the truth yeah. about whether she hired him or they kept that quiet because there's no scene to I, imply that. I think that's a, maybe a plot. <laughs> could be, yeah. Right, Matt's still leading the way. He's um he's ahead on the quiz, but we haven't had a winner for a while. I think it's been draws. We Matt don't too. keep a tally. I've got the tally. I no, think I've fucked do, it, but I've winning. still got the tally. Um, yeah. Question one. What chess move does Fletcher suggest? Tuesday morning brunch. Is it night to king four? Oh, yes, it is. Well done. I thought that was going to be a tough one, actually. Um, but there you go. <laughs> He's watched it more times than your Jimbo. <laughs> also, do you think Rachel sat through your Jimbo? Well, you know what, Matt? Interestingly, I know we're breaking the quiz here, but to me, again, it's a doomed relationship because that Clarence got away with it in True Romance, yeah. doing a Sonny Chiba fucking. She was uh, hired to be like, there. She was getting cash. She was hired to be there. You think that uh, somebody? I mean, you know, you didn't tell us about the eleven-year-old relationship. Are you sure you didn't? Also, take it to see your Jimbo when it seems you wouldn't do that. <laughs> it, no. yeah, it was a seven samurai double bill. Mm. I love the way that Rachel like sort of play Kate's him. It's like, yo, uh, for that movie. action of the end. Yeah, it's a good movie. Is it really, really creepy? Oh no, I'm only joking. But like yeah. she, like she likes yo Jimbo. Yeah. It feels like a rewrite bit that going off the quiz I'm really sorry that like Costner would have had some input like I want my character to be like a samurai and no it was was Captain he was inspired Steve McQueen and Yojimbo that's basically what it was supposed to be put your body on the line yeah Yeah. go on yeah because there's it's a good there is anyway uh, question two how old is Fletcher Tuesday morning no no I think Gally just beat you Matt Eight years old? Eight years old is correct. Nice. Yes. Ooh, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. One all. Final question. Question three. What's the title of the film that Rachel is nominated for? No. No. Gally. I will always love you. No. Oh, not. <laughs> Matt, for the win. Queen of the night. Queen of the night is correct. Yay. Oh. Matt wins. She is very much the queen of the night. Well done. She's the queen of this. There was another film, Hot and Cold. I was like, oh, there's another one called Clock on the Wall from the dining room table. (laughs) It's all bollocks, isn't it? It could only have been three titles, couldn't it? It was either going to be I I Will Run to You, I Will Always Love Ah. You, or Queen of the Night. I just picked the wrong one. (laughs) Ah, well. Good question. Excellent. Well, we very good quiz, Patrick. Um, <laughs> so we'll do our we'll do our summaries. I'll start with you, Matt, as the super fan. Please don't send any more letters. Um, your final thoughts <laughs> on the bodyguard <laughs> <laughs> with detergent. Yeah, uh, I just had a bit of soundtrack trivia. Uh, Nick Lowe, who's an artist that I really like, um, his career didn't set him up financially, and by the early nineties, he was really struggling. But his song, uh, What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding was covered on the soundtrack album to The Bodyguard and that paid his bills for the next 20 years. So they reckon he made about two and a half million just from an artist covering his song on the soundtrack because it was such a big seller. Uh, so I just thought that was really cool. So that's worth the film existing just to fuel Nick Lowe's career. Um, I've probably given it quite a lot of praise. So I'll start with my caveats. Um, 
I think uh, particularly the films I get, I'm quite nostalgic about. Um, I have to try and keep my feet on the ground because I don't think everyone sees them quite the way I do with the rose tinted glasses. So um, it is clunky in places. I think the editing has a haphazardness to it at times. And I don't think the performances are perfect. Um, I think uh, Costner does have the dead eyed thing we've talked about. I was trying to find the example of my boat or uh, I have a brother in this movie. And I think it's when Rachel comes up to him in her snazzy jogging suit and asks him out on a date. And, uh, and, oh no, no, and she's saying in that scene that she's going to try and, uh, be more cooperative with him and his instructions. And he says, uh, that would be good. So there's little moments like that where you get the, the old Costner. But, um, and I, I think her performance is flawed too, but I, as a debut performance in a feature film for someone who's not an actor, I, I think she does really well with it and the charisma and the physical beauty uh, goes a really long way. Um, I think another caveat is it, it can be a bit soppy and a bit cheesy for, for some people perhaps. Uh, there's a real clangor when she says, uh, don't worry, I'll protect you when they're dancing on, on the date, which, which is kind of sweet in a way and it does kind of work in the film i do think there's a televisual quality to it at times i think it's kind Ooh. of uh it could be uh the aspect ratio i thought it's like i think it's 185 it's american widescreen but it looks like it could have been wider it looks like it could have been made to look more cinematic um that's kind of a nitpick um in spite of those things, I really like it and I really enjoy it. I think it's one of the 90s staples. It's iconic and it's, uh, you know, it's casting. Just having Whitney is enough to, to justify it being there. Uh, and it's great to see her at that time, particularly in light of the way her life played out afterwards. I enjoy it for all of its flaws. Yes, there's some nostalgia. Yes, there's some rose tinted glasses, but I, I revisit this one every few years. It's, uh, I'm very fond of it. Uh, how about Galley? I will pass over to you next. Ah, um, I'm going to keep this one nice and short. I really enjoyed <clears throat> watching this last night with Danielle. Um, it, it had that Saturday night feel to it. I do agree, Matt. And actually, you know, we've not that we've probably given this too much praise, but we do this sometimes, don't we? When we, when we come at a film that's had like a history of, one one type of criticism versus another we tend to compensate sometimes overcompensate i do agree that there are elements of it that do look televisual like that aren't wholly cinematic but that introduction you're right i mean i completely forgot about that that entire intro scene they completely forgot about us um and there are also other elements that i think uh, are really shot quite quite beautifully um but when it comes down to everything, the thing I'm most interested in is the dynamics between the two the two leads. Um, and in a way, for a long longest time, you'd say, "Well, movies shouldn't be just about like star power; they should be more." But actually, as we've you know, as I've gotten older and watching more modern films, we're losing stars. So then the stars don't become the star of the show. It's, it's everything else that surrounds them. And I do miss having like genuine stars that I don't really know what their lives are like, 
but I get a glimpse or I get a, get a, you know, it's presented to me about what Whitney Houston's like and what Kevin Costner's like and what would they be like together? Well, that stuff interests me, which is why I think that, you know, I was champion Lady Gaga before because I think she's genuinely a fantastic performer and I'm really looking forward to seeing what she kind of gets involved in in the future because I think she can do both. Um, but, you know, she's one of only a few, I think, that we are lacking the stars. Now, the fact that there are so many Chrises means that there isn't one definitive Chris. So I'll leave that one there. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I think the thriller element is the weakest element of the movie. I think, I think we've all probably agree with that. It would have been interesting to see if David Fincher had directed the bodyguard. I would have been, would have been a different movie. Um, but, but I'm sure that the thriller stalker element would have been juiced up. Um, however, Michael Bay, Andy Dick Splice was fun and, um, you know, Guy from Gladiator who will stab you in the back and then come back when he, when he thinks Quintus indeed, uh, when he realizes that Joaquin Phoenix is dead and then he'll change his allegiance. You can't trust a guy like that. You can't. And I didn't trust him when he came on screen. Um, yeah, roundabout way of saying I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and I think Devlin's review was probably spot on about where I'm at as, as well, which is for all of its messiness and its kind of foibles. Just scene by scene, I was never not entertained. I was never bored. I was never like, God, when does this finish? I was just kind of like, oh, this is weird. We're now in a spit and sawdust uh, date. And, uh, and then next thing we know, we're at the Oscar. Now we're in a log cabin. Now we're in the Oscars. Before we were in the mansion that The Godfather was filmed at with the horse. I was like, this is, this is very strange. Yeah, for some people, it might be a little bit too, um, I don't know ill-disciplined or not as structured you know certainly like i'm thinking like modern audiences now who are used to like tightly scripted movies that don't have any kind of like fat on them or bagginess but i like this movie i did and i and i always remembered liking it as a kid and i think it because it feeds into that impressionable view of like what romance and love can be like anyway what about you patrick final thoughts well I didn't watch it with anyone else. I watched it on my own. And you know what? I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I would recommend it. My favorite scene is the, um, the date and the samurai sword stuff. Um, which I think says a lot about the film that I'm, I like the love story. I got swept up in it. I got swept up in the two characters and their friction and then warming to each other and, uh, developing. And, you know, the, the thriller side is the vehicle for them to, to get together, which like the Titanic's the vehicle for Kate and Leo. You know, this was, um, the, you're going to be murdered. Okay. Let's get together. Matt, I really like what you said about like the love aspect of someone willing to die for someone. Cause I, you know, I hadn't, quite naively hadn't saw that the film called came full circle that way. And I thought it was his job and he was the samurai and he was like dying for honor or that kind of thing. But for love, of course you're right. And that's already given it a nice, uh, fuller, um, payoff for me. Um, but it's, you know, I found the film quite solid and, uh, but I, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. It's not perfect and it is too long for me as well. You know, like if there was another 20, 25 minutes in this, I'm, I'm like, whoa, okay. But I, I said to, to Gally, Matt, that 
I think it's telling we don't have a director's cut because you know, look how commercially successful this is and how like people really like this film and speak of it quite um quite positively and I don't think it needs a director's cut or the the sex scene. And it seems like an everlasting iconic love story and performance and like they hit at the right time. It was um yeah, you, we've said it throughout the episode. It's just great that this has that image and Whitney Houston's performance and iconography that is, I do think it's quite everlasting. Um, but some hammy dialogue, some weird performances, some, I don't know, just it, it takes a while and the, the stalker doesn't always work and things don't make sense. There's plot holes throughout, but yeah, still quite. Very much enjoyed it. Uh, like I like I like having red herrings and things to think about and who done it and but it's you know at the end it's quite formulaic and gets there but somehow doesn't matter. It's done quite well and I'm not bothered about all of that. So it works. It's it's didn't let me down. Like like Farmer didn't let her down. Yeah, there is something comforting about knowing exactly what you're getting into. And I think the bodyguard has that element of, I know what I'm about to sit yeah. down and watch. I think it's well made, you know, like it is well made. There's, there's some weird like action bits that come in and it's that, for me, it's that thing of, we better throw some action in here, like, uh, knocking out the random guy smoking in the, in the kitchen is you know, uncalled for, but it says something about its character. At least it has something. And the foot chase of the car, like, there's no way he'd, he, what's he gonna do when he get, anyway. There was the bit in the kitchen where he fights Tony, um, which, which I really enjoy. Yeah. My favorite scene that Matt, Could not, a, not, a, not a word uttered until, until he says, I don't want to have this discussion again. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Where he's cutting the apple and just the chair over the neck. He's yeah. like, I, I said in the story time, I made sure I said it that he keeps his cool throughout because that's yeah. like, he says his disguise, was it at the beginning? She says, I thought you're supposed to be a hard man. He's like, this is my disguise. Right. And he's just again telling us he's very capable. He's a professional. This is who he is. So Patrick, Matt, where can our listeners seek out Farmer and the bodyguard? Uh, if you've got a now TV subscription in the UK, you can watch it there because it's on Sky Cinema at the minute. So likewise, if you've got Sky and Sky Cinema, you can watch it. Otherwise, that's the only place in the UK at the moment. Otherwise, by yourself, not the Blu-ray. If it's going to look televisual, like Matt said, probably not. But um... I, I think the transfer is okay. But the it, it was just the the idea that it's the 30th anniversary coming up, and I thought maybe they would do something in terms of a. Uh... A director's cut but you may be mm, right it may yeah. be unnecessary but, but although when it screens on on tv in the usa there are two or three deleted scenes that are spliced back in uh, not the love scene but the undressing scene which i kind of but it was in the cinema in the uk earlier this year for the 30th matt yeah if you can catch it on the big screen go for it if you like what we do but you would like a piece of it not a piece of us that's stalker territory, but a piece of merch. Then you can go to Devlin Does Drawing, where you'll find posters, stickers, T-shirts, shower caps, apparently, as well. <laughs> you always say shower cap. There isn't one. There's uh, a couple of new things that I put on there. We're, we're calling them uh, auto-adhesives. There's two sets of 
silly director's stickers. So it's like James Cameron as the Terminator and Ridley Scott with a chest burster coming out of him. So if you like uh, directors, you can have a look at them. And there's one more new one uh, commemorating our uh, Ham Neal Award. There's a, a gruesome, grotesque rendering of the lovely Sam Neill, which I'm still ashamed to have drawn, but it's, it's on there. It's, it's, it's Sam Neill as a pig, basically. I'm what sorry. have you created? Yeah. Yeah. It's awful, but there you go. You can buy that if you want. Yes. Well, it, that way. So listeners, if you, if you are at the cinema, for example, and you see a film and a performance that is worthy of the, the Ham Neill award, you can yeah. just slap <laughs> it on the screen there and then. <laughs> Done. But audience also, please. Please do tell us um, your best, worst, and oddest musician appearances in films. Yeah, listener requests, if you have any. Yeah, well, we've we've had another one. We've had American Psycho come in, so we'll have to do that at some point. Okay. Listeners, if you like what we do, then please like, share, spread the gospel team. Pen a little review, especially on Spotify, which is now seemingly, you know, I'm not going to get involved in the Spotify versus Apple, Peach Apple thing. But the cool kids tend to listen to the spots and not the apps. All right. So yeah, please a review. It's, it does wonders for us because it brings more people to the party. So that is all we ask. Um, also final plea. You're probably like, Jesus Christ. Anything else? Um, final plea. I am running the Glasgow or the great Scottish run is actually what it's called on the 2nd of October. The link I have put on our Twitter. If you would like to make a donation, it all goes to a worthy cause. It's the Glasgow Children's Hospital. Um, it's a half marathon I'm running. I'm running it in Forrest Gump costume. I was going to do it in the Running Man uh, costume. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Forrest Gump costume. He, he goes through a lot of costume changes throughout that run. Uh, okay, so, well, I'm going as uh, what bearded, yeah, thank you, long, very good, long haired with the socks. It happens. Well, in fact, um, if you want the picture, it's the Forrest Gump when the guy is like, he had all these t-shirts, but he, he tried to make making money with, and it's like yellow. No one likes yellow, and it's the have a nice day. So there you go. That's have what I'm a, going a nice day. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing it mainly out of spite because Devlin genuinely hates <laughs> Forrest Gump. Yeah. So um, oh, oh, can we pick it soon then, please? So, um, yeah, I wanted to go as the butcher of base, uh, Bakersfield. However, uh, the costume's just too bloody difficult to make. Yeah. Very form-fitting as well. Well, we will say our goodbyes then, team. Um, listeners, pin your ears back. I want to run to you. <laughs> it's Gally in Glasgow. Stay safe. Bada bing, bada boom. It's Patrick in Rome. I'm here to keep you alive, not help you shop. Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewire Movie Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>